Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. And it's all bad martinis. We'll just get that out of the way right at the top. But they are important martinis and uh, perhaps things to think about, not just with the headlines we're dealing with in these particular martinis, but uh, deeper issues as well. Let's start with Iran. It's very rare that Iran is involved in the good martini, unless it's leaving General Soleimani as a stain at the Baghdad airport. Uh, Jim, let's go to the pages of the Free Beacon. So, you know, kudos to the Republicans who are calling this out. But what the Biden administration seemingly wants to do here is insane. Republican foreign policy leaders in Congress are pushing back against an effort by the Biden administration and its European partners to nix an international atomic energy agency investigation into Iran's atomic weapons program as part of concessions meant to entice Iran into signing a new nuclear agreement. Five Republican lawmakers, led by New York Republican Claudia Tenney, wrote to the IAEA that its probe should continue until it has sufficient answers from Iran about its atomic weapons program. Iran has blocked IAEA inspectors from accessing its contested nuclear sites for years, with the international organization disclosing possible Iranian violations of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty as recently as last week. Iran has also removed cameras that monitor its nuclear sites. So, Jim, first of all, the fact that uh, we're having discussions about inspections of the nuclear weapons program means that Iran's statements to the contrary would appear to be uh, the fiction that we always knew they were. But, Jim, I, I mean, we know from the 2015 agreement that it was just full of loopholes that the Iranians could completely ignore the supposed inspections regime here. But now the Biden administration won't even let the IAEA uh, do its work. So other than helping Barack Obama burnish his legacy, I have no idea what they think they're accomplishing here. No, and this is a good illustration of how I'm very skeptical that you could ever get a genuinely constructive, useful uh, agreement with the Iranian regime that genuinely promotes U.S. national interests, national security interests, and the security of the region. But when Democrats announce these sorts of plans, they usually make it sound really not that bad. And they're always talking about, ah, you know, uh, this is going to have the most ex- extensive inspections there's ever been of Iranian facilities, and they're not going to have any warnings we can inspect them at any time. And in fact, if we find any violations, there'll be snapback sanctions and all that stuff. And maybe as they originally conceive this type of plan, it could theoretically be workable. But there's a problem. You need to get the Iranians to sign on to that. And then they get to the negotiating table and they drag on for a very long time. And bit by bit, step by step, all of these things that made the deal reasonable, all of these things that provided some sort of upside for the U.S. and its allies, starts to dwindle bit by bit. Oh, you know, actually, maybe we're we're not going to have quite as extensive inspections as we originally envisioned. And well, okay, maybe we got to give them some warnings. And this means that they can move stuff or hide stuff. And well, okay, maybe the sanctions won't snap back quite as fast or something like that. So bit by bit, you end up with a deal that really does no good because you've already spent months and months. And this is back in the days of John Kerry. Um, you can't come away and say, well, we tried negotiating with these guys were unreasonable. And so the whole deal has gone. Like, they, the Iranians aren't dumb. They know how much a democratic administration desperately wants to have an achievement. And eventually it turns into the sunken cost theory. 
that the U.S., whoever's representing the U.S., can't afford to walk away from the table and say, screw it, the Iranians are just not reasonable about this, there's no point in a deal, because then it admits, they have to admit the idea of reaching a deal with the Iranians was kind of naive from the beginning. So they need the deal to work, which means they need to agree to whatever the Iranians demand or almost anything the Iranians demand. And that's how we end up in a situation like this. It sounds very good at the beginning, and then the reality is there. And eventually the U.S. becomes a de facto ally of the Iranians against institutions like the IAEA. No, it's absolutely insane. Uh, Making Iran stronger does no good. They're going to get access to a whole bunch of money. They're going to get a ton of sanctions lifted. I think the only thing the Biden administration didn't agree to was removing the Revolutionary Guard Corps from the uh, uh, list of terrorism-sponsoring organizations. And so uh, this this is just madness. It's especially madness in the wake of the Abraham Accords, where it it seemed like the U.S. was working with Israel and uh, Gulf states and the Saudis behind the scenes to really kind of isolate Iran. And instead, this administration just decides to give a big sloppy wet kiss to the uh, the world's worst sponsors of terrorism. But uh, yeah, whether it's Blinken or Kerry or whoever else we're sending over there to negotiate, it's just like Chip Diller in Animal House. No matter what the uh, Iranians want, it's thank you, sir, may I have another. And it's only going to make things more dangerous in the region and here at home as well. All right. You thought that was bad. Let's move on to our second bad martini now, Jim. And uh, the Democrats are in a very good mood today. That's usually not a good thing. And today they're in a very good mood over the fact that uh, for the first time in a very long time, they have the lone House seat in the state of Alaska. Mary Peltola is the new congresswoman from that district. Don Young had been the longest serving member of the House uh, until he unfortunately uh, passed away earlier this year. But... Jim, as you point out so well in the morning jolt today, Mary Peltola in a normal election would have been an afterthought here. This is a ranked choice system that Alaska has going here. And so if you don't get a majority of the vote, they uh, cross out the person with the least amount of votes and then find out the second, third, fourth choices of these voters. And so uh, if you don't get a majority, then you go to the, the second choice. And if you still don't have a majority winner at that point, you go to the third choice and on and on and on. In the original round of voting, Mary Peltola finished fourth, you point out in the jolt today, with just 10% of the vote. Sarah Palin finished first at 27%. But the problem is, is that even other candidates and their supporters don't like Sarah Palin, so she never got to 50. The other Republican in the race was a Begich, which always makes me suspicious because they're a famous Democratic family in the state. But um, in the end, uh, it's Mary Peltola with 51% of the vote after several rounds of voting. So even though 90% of the people showed up not wanting her to be the congresswoman, she's going to be the congresswoman. And then we have this race all over again this fall. So first of all, Greg, I want to point out that if you, depending on how quickly we edited the morning jolt that gets sent out to everyone, uh, you are correct that the surname of the winning Democratic candidate is Peltola, not Pelota, the Spanish word for ball. Thank you, Autocorrect, for changing it on every single reference in which I sent it out. (laughs) Hopefully we fixed it. I don't know if it did. I look really dumb if it didn't, but I swear to God, I wrote it down correctly, and Autocorrect decided to say, no, 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 he didn't mean that. He meant the Spanish word for ball. So anyway, Um, I'm also surprised by the, uh, not uniformly, but, but, you know, know, uh, loud pushback I've gotten to today's morning jolt. Apparently there are some huge fans of ranked choice voting out there. 
And they see, you know, what happened in Alaska as this phenomenal, great success story. Now, I am not a huge fan of Sarah Palin. I don't, you know, that I think you got real good reasons to complain about the way she left office. I think she's basically spent the last decade or so being a uh, thoroughly unserious celebrity, you know, the masked singer, all that kind of stuff. So I've got my, this is not a, I love Sarah Palin. I wish she had won. It is more of a, we have set, first of all, there are two huge problems in what Alaska is doing. The first is we, we've talked about the problems with ranked choice voting to begin with. But the other thing, and I, this came out in the, the back and forth, maybe a big part of the problem is that they did ranked choice voting and a jungle primary. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the phrase, it doesn't mean you're holding the primary in a jungle. It means Democrats, Republicans, independents, all these folks are running on the same day and the top X number of vote getters uh, go on to the general election. In California, they have this. And so you end up sometimes with two Democrats ending up in the general election running against each other because no Republican uh, finished first or second. In Alaska, they went with the top four, right? So when we say the first round, people are saying, Jim, it's a primary, but it's a jungle primary. So it's effectively the same thing as a general election. Everybody's voting for everybody. So that's how, that's to me, that's the first, I call that the first round of voting because that's the first time people went to the polls and they picked which person they wanted to be the representative. There are people who argue, Jim, that doesn't count because it's the primary, even though everybody can vote for everybody, can every candidate. And I don't, I don't think that really is what we most people think of as a primary, but fine, we can, we can have that. Once you put ranked choice voting on top of that, well, then it really matters who do you rank third and who do you rank fourth? And my sense is, uh, if maybe in a Republican presidential primary, people would have strong opinions about the top four or five candidates. But I ask you, you know, like how often do you know four or five candidates for your state legislative seat? How often do you know uh, four or five candidates for your town council, city council, board of ed? Right. I mean, these are generally less well-known candidates. And remember, it's not just do you like one or two or who's your favorite, who you prefer between fourth place and fifth place could have real consequences. And I think most voters just don't make all that kind of stuff. Oh, by the way, if you skip one spot, if you don't list a second place finisher, but you do mention third and fourth, well, then your third choice automatically moves up to become your second choice and your fifth, fourth choice automatically moves up to the third choice. But if you have two, you march somebody as the first choice and somebody as your fourth choice, that fourth choice does not count. And they like, it's really complicated. I'm stunned by the number of people who look at this and say, oh no, it's very simple. It's very workable. Yes, I put in some jokes about uh, making a saving throw, like from Dungeons and Dragons and horoscopes and, and stuff like that. And the playoff qualifying rules from basketball. And I was clear that those part were jokes, but the actual rules do strike me as really complicated. And if your real problem is, you know what? I want every person who gets elected to have gotten a majority, get 50% plus one. Okay. I, that, that strikes me as a very reasonable desire. You are ups, you are bothered by candidates who win a plurality in a crowded field. And you think this empowers an extreme candidate who is not actually all that popular. And you think this is bad for our system of government. You think it's bad for democracy. Okay. I, I can see where you're coming from on that. To me, a runoff like they have in Georgia, where like they have in Louisiana and places like that, where the top, if no, if somebody gets 50%, congratulations, you're the senator, you're the governor, you win. If you don't do that, you go on to a runoff and you have to get 50 with only the top two candidates and then you're the win. That strikes me as a very workable system because in that sense, you know, yes, the winner gets more than 50%. The first round, you're knocking out the riffraff. There's a chance for you to win in the first round. Maybe you don't need a runoff if a candidate is sufficiently popular, but, you know, keep going this way. This, and my, my objection is less that the Democrat won 
then in this case, I, I think there is value to candidates say, I, I don't know how many people genuinely preferred the Democratic option or just found her acceptable. And I think that if you enact ranked choice in enough places, you're going to get it. Basically, it tells you not to be uh, don't be bold. Don't say things that could uh, be controversial. Don't say things that somebody might not like. Aim to be the most generic candidate possible and inoffensive and try to be everybody's second choice. And that's the easiest way to win. And I don't, I think that's just trading one problem in our politics for another. I, I just don't think um, ranked choice voting. And the, the other thing is, is that in a lot of these cases, um, particularly if the comment section of Ricochet is listening, yes, I know I'm a terrible squish. Yes, I know I'm a moderate. And but these, here's a system that empowers the squishes and empowers the moderates. And I still don't like it because I don't think the purpose of the system is to give me what I want the most often. If you put your thumb on the scale for a certain type of candidate, you're kind of saying that we can't really be trusted with true self-government. You're basically saying the electorate's too dumb, too seduced by idiots, uh, too easily nominates you know somebody who doesn't belong in government. And as a result of it, we need to change the rules to help the right kind of candidates win. I really don't like that thinking because it leads to at the end is basically saying we don't really we shouldn't really have self-government. We should have self-government amongst a approved menu of options that somebody else has decided is okay. That's not really what our system of government, not really what America is supposed to be about. Yeah, the way I always look at these things, first of all, my gut instinct tells me it's a terrible idea because it should be one person, one vote, and may the person with the most votes win. And if you want to go to a runoff, that's fine. I agree with you totally about the jungle primary. It just adds a uh, total fiasco to this, especially in a state where you've got a Republican majority. 60% of the people went to the polls voting for a Republican, and you end up with a Democrat winning who only had 10% of the vote. So that's not exactly uh, giving the voters their their will in this situation. But if you look at social media and, and so forth, it's always the left that loves ranked choice voting. It's why they were so excited that they thought they were going to take out Susan Collins last year. That didn't actually happen. Um, but, you know, in Alaska, I think this is largely known as the Lisa Murkowski Preservation Program, uh, because now that she's, uh, you know, up against Kelly Shabaka and, and Democrats, uh, there's no way that Kelly Shabaka is likely to be the second choice of many people at all. And with four people on the ballot, the odds of her getting to 50% are not likely either. And so Lisa Murkowski is in uh, much better shape than she otherwise uh, would have been. But I think ultimately, uh, like you said, this is going to enable squishes. Some people would say moderates, but it, I think it really hurts uh, conservative candidates in various places. So let's hope this isn't contagious in too many more states. All right, on to our third bad martini of the day and this one's double fisted so you really have four bad martinis today uh and this is about energy you know it's just last week jim we were talking about california getting ready to mandate the end of gas-powered vehicles by 2035 we're going all renewable man we're doing hydrogen we're doing electric vehicles that's our future a week later it's getting hot in california and so the uh, power grid is uh in danger of maxing out. And so what are the recommendations for people of California? Set your thermostats to 78 degrees or higher. Avoid using large appliances. What are you supposed to do? Unplug your fridge. And charging electric vehicles. 
and turn off unnecessary lights. So we've got this great new future for you unless it's hot and then you can't charge your car and you can't go anywhere. So beware of that. Meanwhile, over in Colorado, speaking of 78 degrees, temperatures climbed into the 90s Tuesday in the Denver area. And when he went to turn on his AC, a guy named Tony Tallarico says, that's when he saw a message on the thermostat stating the temperature was locked due to an energy emergency. This is from Channel 7 in Denver. Tallarico says, quote, normally when we see a message like that, we're able to override it. In this case, we weren't. So our thermostat was locked in at 78 or 79. On social media, dozens of customers of XL Energy complained of similar experiences, some reporting home temperatures as high as 88 degrees. XL confirmed to uh, Denver 7 that 22,000 customers who had signed up for the Colorado AC Rewards Program were locked out of their smart thermostats for hours on Tuesday. Quote, it's a voluntary program. Let's remember that this is something that customers choose to be part of based on the incentives. Customers receive $100 credit for enrolling in the program and $25 annually, but they also agree to give up some control to save energy and money and make the system more reliable. Jim, we love our smart devices, but when we love them too much, they leave us in a position where other people make decisions for us, and some of those decisions are things we're not going to like. Greg, this is another vivid demonstration of two very important life lessons. One, read the fine print. Think, know what you're going in for. You know. Two, think about the long-term consequence and not just the immediate gratification of, oh, I'm getting 100 bucks now. Sure, I'll let you have control of my thermostat. Well, uh, you know, it's uh, this will be fine in midsummer or the coldest days of winter. What? How bad could it be? And then you find out how it is. Um, I, I was, I saw this, and what it made me think of, intriguingly, is this suggestion. This, you know, I am somebody who, you know, not too far from where I'm recording this. God, we used to have a ton of VHS tapes, and then we had a ton of DVDs. And, you know, like many other Americans have kind of fallen out of the habit of doing that, even though there's all kinds of stuff that I like, because I got streaming and I can stream what I want uh, pretty much 24-7, right? Until the film or the TV series or something goes off the streaming service. Then you got to figure out, did somebody else buy the rights? Is it available some other way or something? And somebody observed, we are no longer in the era of tangible purchases, uh, movies, TV, uh, CDs, and things like that. You download it. It's you, know, you don't have it. Somebody else has it. You just use it when you want. But that means you don't really own something, which means your access to it isn't really controlled of it. If you've got a DVD, you still have something that can play VHS tapes, God bless you. Um, well, then you have it. And, and no matter, you know, if somebody doesn't like uh, that movie becomes controversial, that, you know, I've heard a lot of people speculate that someday they think they won't be able to purchase the Cosby show. I don't, that hasn't been the case, but I'm sure it probably is. Probably sales are down, you know, because of the controversy surrounding Bill Cosby. But this idea that uh, somebody else knows what's best for you. And what they'll do is they'll decide, well, you can't have access to that anymore. The other kind of intriguing point about this was that uh, apparently in Stranger Things, uh, somebody pointed out that the characters had made a reference to somebody's birthday. And then one of the, in the show, that day had passed with no mention of the character's birthday. And somebody said, hey, did you mean to do that? And the creator is like, oh, no, nope, we just forgot that. Um, so they went back and they changed the date digitally. They can go in and do that. And the thing is, if you had like a DVD uh, of that Stranger Things episode, it would remain as it was. But if you're streaming it, well, now you can only get the new version. Now, this is a very minor change. 
Although, as George Lucas taught us, once you let a filmmaker start tweaking with their past <laughs> works, they can go in all kinds of bad directions. But this is an interesting thing. Like, does you know, all of a sudden these creators can change what you have? Well, it's the same kind of dynamic at work. Yes, it is a voluntary program, but you've basically decided, well, I'm going to rent the ability to heat my to set my thermostat from the energy company. But when they want, they can take it away from me or they can set limits. I am a child and I'm only allowed to have a certain amount. Just as you don't only allow your kids to have a certain amount of screen time, the energy company has decided you're only allowed to have a certain amount of air conditioning time or only a certain amount of heating time. We know what's best for you. We know what you deserve. We know what you're allowed to have. And by for that 100 bucks way back when you signed on, you've given us control. Gee, that, there's no way this could this deal could possibly get any worse for you. Um, I've heard some folks who are critical of the development of this kind of uh, uh, mentality in, in uh, uh, corporate America and this idea that America, you actually, you, you own less and less. This argument is in the near future, you'll own nothing and you'll love it. I'm not so convinced that's the case. I kind of like owning things. I kind of like think this is mine and I can do with it what I want. And you, the you know, company, cannot yank this away one time. When, you, when you've decided you don't want to, I mean, to have it anymore, whether it's a film that might be controversial or the ability to set my thermostat. You can, you can crank the rates. I can't control that. But I don't like the idea that you can come in and just decide, eh, we just, we, we've decided we don't want you to go any higher than 60-some you know, in the, in the uh, winter. And we don't want you to go any lower than the 70s in, in uh, air conditioning. I'm, I'm one of those guys who likes to blast it in summer. Um, but the idea that, no, we're the energy company. We know best. We'll decide what temperatures are appropriate for you. It's very, a little Orwellian, a little dystopian. And I hope that there's enough of a backlash to this. But considering how things are going in California, Greg, I'm not counting on that. Well, exactly. But, you know, you got the Davos crowd. It's already saying, you know, we don't think people really need to own their own vehicles anymore. We don't think you need to own land anymore. And so it's always, you know, couched in the climate language, too, which is why, the more you hear, the more you think this is obviously much more about control than saving the planet. We've already talked about how electric vehicles are not good for the planet. Um, but Jim, from an environmental perspective, I can easily see us getting to the point here, whether you know whether they know what's how far we've driven or what we've done with our AC. They're just going to say, you know what, you've reached your carbon footprint, so we're going to keep you at this level until whenever. And so all of a sudden, just the very basic things you control in your own home uh, or in your own mobility are going to be subject to somebody else's control. And that is not good. Greg, I'm always kind of, people say, oh, it's going to be better if you don't own anything. Why do these people want to own things? Uh, the brainwashing that goes on, you know, because you, you got so many people now, a lot of kids these days, and it's been this way for a while, have no interest in driving because they think cars are evil and they just want to live in these urban areas and get around in Ubers and however else they do it, those uh, obnoxious scooters, perhaps. Um, but yeah, it's it's this whole mindset now that's, that, that's taken hold. And I think we need to pay attention to what's happening here because the people that want to limit our freedom of movement and so forth and, and our energy consumption... Uh, They've, they've got a willing audience with a lot of young people, and that's that's pretty frightening. Well, what an uplifting and exciting and encouraging day here on the Three Martini Lunch Gym. We've got Iran getting closer to doing whatever it wants, which I guess it already was doing on nukes. We've got a person with 10% of the vote heading to Congress, and uh, we've got people uh, micromanaging our lives when it comes to energy. What a great day. Cheer up, everybody. It'll get better. <laughs> or maybe it won't.
<laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Uh, thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Uh, also, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Don't forget about Jim's new novel, Gathering Five Storms, the short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday and join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Texas Congressman Lance Gooden joins me to explain how our government and various charities are actually aiding and abetting the human trafficking across our border. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Gooden will also tell us which charities are doing the most harm. And I have a lot to say about how the FBI is getting more and more partisan and why that is very dangerous for our nation. Join us. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.